Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the entire law. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? Such persecution does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. I am confident about you in the Lord that you will not think otherwise. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. But, my friends, why am I still being persecuted if I, if I am still preaching circumcision? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Not only use your free only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires, desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, liciousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another and being one another. All right, so one question this week. Last week I tried to ask four, and I feel like it was an abysmal uh, performance on my end, not that it's a performance, so I made myself go one question this week. And here we go. What if God is calling us to a way of being human that involves unity and holiness? And what I particularly want to kind of try to draw our attention towards is the simplicity of the one and the complexity of the two. Uh, that unity is, is proving itself easy absent any kind of standard, and standards prove themselves easy absent any kind of diversity of thought or opinion or, or, or value towards unity. The two together, incredibly difficult. The two apart, incredibly simple. Which makes me think, can you think of something? I was trying to illustrate this for myself this week is one of the principles of studying the text is try to draw it. So I was thinking, what, is, what, what are things, maybe you, this is your lunchtime conversation to the extent that you need one, what are things that independently are easy, or what is something, but together is really difficult? 
Something that if you do it just that, uh, it's, it's easy. There's that, maybe you've d- done that like pat your head thing, have you done this? And then they like do circles around your stomach. And the only reason I can kind of do it is because I've been rehearsing it all week in my office. Try, try it, just pat your head and then try to do this. And if you can do it, then you've just auditioned to the band to be a drummer. So congratulations. Or I was thinking this week, uh, riding your, if, you, if you do any mountain bike riding, like riding uh, down a single track, I mean, relatively easy, assuming you're not going up Ascension. Looking over your shoulder if you're not riding to see who's behind you, relatively easy. But riding down a single track and looking over your shoulder, it's this thing that defies logic. Like a person should be able to ride their bike and look back, but it's almost impossible and it will get you killed. Or someone else this week said, uh, driving and drinking out of your water bottle. (laughs) To which I'd say that's why they invented straws. Can you think of anything? Uh, I thought of this, there's this guy, Danny McCaskill, and there's a few things that he does that are like easy by themselves, but then he does it on a bike, and so then uh, Justin, being the consummate service, I was, like, servant, I was like, hey, could you get this video for like a minute up here? So we've got a video for you of a guy doing things by themselves that are easy, but together, shockingly, that he can do it. Shocking that he can do it at all. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, right? It's not always things that were easy by themselves, but I've, I'm convinced, I was just thinking, like, if that guy was an FBI agent, he wouldn't even need a bulletproof vest because his core has got to be like a rock, doesn't it? What, what, if, what if this is what God calls us to? And the reason why I think this is relevant this morning, whether you're actively a follower of Jesus or not, is... Like all of us are aware, the last few years has been this like endless string of factions and divisions and arguments and violence and canceling and just one culture battle after another. And it's so easy to sit back from it and just condemn it or feel better than it. It's also so easy to participate in it. But one of the things that just makes me so proud to associate with Jesus and this movement he created is 2,000 years ago, he, he spoke to the problem and the solution. Like the, the extent to which there is a salve, to the extent to which there is a healing balm, he, he had an idea. And it was this remnant people, deeply moved by the cross, deeply moved by the Spirit of God in them, not in me, in them, who would somehow, in the midst of this culture, and I think it's, we, we have to be careful to not tell ourselves that our culture is uniquely bad. It's, 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 it's been troubling from the very beginning but that his idea would be these people would somehow live in community together. They would have diverse families of origin and different backgrounds. They would have different experiences and unique convictions and skills and callings. They wouldn't all see the world the exact same way, but they would see it through the lens of Christ. And after, after living life together and doing the hard work of unity and holiness, like that value would, would trickle into culture. What if God does have a solution, but the extent to which places like this and people like us don't live it out, like then it is pretty hopeless. It struck me this week that it feels kind of quiet right now. I suppose if you work in legislature, it's not quiet at all. But for most of us, we have this luxury right now of like just the, the fervor seems to kind of have dissipated. And yet, maybe we do well to remind ourselves uh, the cancer's not gone. It's just lying dormant. And we all know, starting somewhere around a year from now, or maybe even earlier than that, like things are gonna pick up again and it's gonna get crazy. And what if the hope of the world is a people taking seriously this man, Jesus of Nazareth, from 2,000 years ago, who cast a vision for a people of somehow holding the tension, like living in the nuance, 
knowing what hills to die on, so to speak, and which ones not to, avoiding the dangers of pretension, but at the same time, avoiding the pitfalls of licentiousness. And what if that's the story that Paul is telling right here? I want to jump in and thank you, Amy, for reading. There's just a few spots I just want to go back and draw our attention to in, in, chat, in verse two. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that you let, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's ob- obligated or obliged to ob- obey the entire law. You want to be justified by the law, have cut yourselves off from Christ, you've fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, if you've been with us in this whole series, maybe you have the narrative. If not, let me just try to catch us up to it, because the whole story starts with Paul saying, saying, we've been set free from the present evil age. The reason we celebrate church on Sundays is because the original belief of the death and resurrection was that a whole new creation started with Jesus' resurrection. And Paul says that changed everything. I thought Hannah did a brilliant job a couple weeks ago of just illustrating with her nieces and nephews that the story of them of how like all rules, they serve a purpose for a time and those were the rules that the Jews had. But Paul's going, it's a new moment. And the pagan ways of offering sacrifice to the God, it's over, the gods, it's over, they've been defeated. That like it sticks with you is this, but the, those old ways cling to us. And so Paul's going, hey, it's a new moment. By the way, this is the first time he actually uses the word circumcision in the text. He's alluded to it. It's also the first time, just, Paul has gotta be the most interesting person to meet because I love how later he says, if you're gonna do it, I just wish you'd cut the whole thing off. To which you're going like, what's the thing? Go ahead, it's what you think it is. Like, just cut the whole thing off. But it does, I think what can help the story uh, maybe go into 3D is to ask ourselves like, okay, so how did this impact them? these early people who knew one way of life up until this point, like how did that land for them? Because effectively what Paul is doing, through Christ we think, is obliterating their norms. And so essentially what he's causing them to do is go like, okay, so how do we know who's in? How do we know who's out? How do we know who's a part of this family? Like what's the litmus test? And all of us, we're we're communal creatures. We all wanna be a part of some group, even if the group is the one who doesn't wanna be a part of a group. Like we all wanna be a part of a group. And so they're left going like, how do we tell? And it, for me, it's just helpful to sit with like, man, that would be disruptive. It's, it's like being a part of a team that your freshman, sophomore, junior year was all about playing defense and pounding the ball. And then the coach shows up day one of your senior year and goes like, hey, we're gonna spread out the ball and we're gonna do a high scoring offense. It's like being a part of a band that, that for a decade has, has played indie rock and suddenly the lead singer shows up and says, we're a, we're a, we're a country music band now. It's incredibly disruptive. And the question that they're therefore asking is like, so Paul, how do we know? And the brilliance of what he says next, I think is, uh, it's challenging, it's also scary. He says this, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. I mean, this is that simple but demanding idea, like the most true things are often incredibly simple and yet still demanding, because he goes, well, Here's, here's, here's what it'll be. You'll know them because they'll build their life upon the reliability of God, the trustworthy nature of God, which isn't, it's not just a creed, it's not just a, it's not just a statement, it's a lifestyle, and we all know when we're living within it and when we're struggling to do it. And then, 
The only other requirement, so you have this obligation to God, and that obligation brings with it a secondary obligation, and that's to one another. And here's one of the, I think, challenging, but maybe scandalous things about this. Who's the one another? Because we have this tendency, and on some level rightfully so, to assume the one another is everybody in Helena. And to some extent it is, by extension, but it's not Paul's audience. He's talking to this community, maybe not unlike this one. And, and the, at least the first move of love is by, by your faithfulness to one another, by the community amongst you. Because he seems to know that the longer you get to know people and the more experiences you have, the more hurts and hangups that enter into the relationship. And it's hard. It's hard to have standards and unity. Question. If if a bomb was dropped on your life, and you'd, after you'd worked through all the trauma and the grief of that, like if, if a bomb was dropped on your life and you were left by yourself outside of all of your current obligations and relationships to piece it back together, how would you go about that? Or, or maybe this would be helpful if like the, the claw machine at Winco somehow could pick you up and drop you in Toronto. I don't know why I picked Toronto. It seems like a neat city. H- how would you go about reassembling your life? And particularly what I'm asking is like, what, what obligations and commitments do you currently carry that you would be quick to, to, to reactivate? Maybe in new ways with new people, with new companies, and, and which ones wouldn't you? H- how would you go about living out your faith? We started talking about this way back in August of like, if, if Nary went away, how would you put together your spiritual life? I ask that because I think that's part of what Paul is getting at here, and it became very personal to me when I was studying through this. Many of you will know, and if, if we haven't talked, you can just see it even in the way we're leading around here, that, that I myself, like everyone else here, came out of the last few years different than I entered it. And for me, a big piece of that journey has just been like unbuoyed, non-historical Christian faith just doesn't carry weight for me anymore. I think I'm getting old, but I know that there's this value to going like, okay, I don't, I don't want to have to reinvent every wheel and think about everything, and I'm kind of tired of being the authority to myself, only kind of. <laughs> and so it's led me down this path, and we've talked about it, of spending a lot of time learning the way the Eastern Orthodox thinks about faith, because they have this long tradition, and Roman Catholicism, and the way they think about Christian faith, and, and even uh, Anglicanism, and the way they think about faith. It's led to lots of conversations among friends and family and different things. And as I was working through Galatians 5, I think it was late summer, maybe it was like September, October, there was this moment, and every time I show up to the text to pray and read in the morning, I don't have these experiences, but these experiences are what keeps me coming back to them. Because suddenly God did seem very personal and very proximate, and there was this question of, Adam, uh, if you were 19 years old and had no attachments, no mortgage, no wife, no kids, no, no friends and family, no, no local community that you've helped birth, like no obligations whatsoever, then you could rightfully pursue your Christian faith in whatever kind of historical context you wanted to. For the record, I'm pretty sure I'd become low church Anglican. But the, the, the way the conversation came through for me was, but that's not true. You're 43, at least I was at the time, you, you have a wife who has her own journey and her own convictions around these things. You have kids, you have friends and family, you have this community called Narrate. So it's not that simple. And for me, the conversation came around to, so can you just trust me 
that there will be ways where you can bring people with you on this journey. And at the same time, there will be ways that you can pursue things on your own time, so to speak, that allow you to live into your own integrity, while at the same time not having to blow things up unnecessarily. And where there was real meaning for me was this reminder of, because ultimately, it's not about whether or not you're Orthodox or Catholic or even Anglican. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself or working through love. I don't know about you, but I would love for it to be simpler than those two things. Or actually, I take that back. I would love for it to be more complex because those things are simple but demanding. But, but I, I would love for my faith to be determined by whether or not I believe all the right theological points in their nuanced fashion accurately. Turns out that's not particularly God's priority. And it just, it brings me back to this question of, okay, so Paul, how do we do this? And Paul goes, this is really disruptive. But there's this whole new way of being human that's just that, that really the only two screens that things have to flow through is the faithfulness of God and your reliance upon it and your capacity to grow in extending God's love to others and in your relationships. But the key to me here, and this is its own aha that we'll save for when we look at Ruth in, in July, that he's not speaking to a person. He's speaking to a people And I guess, frankly, part of my own cynicism towards my own evangelical background, while I'm grateful for many things, is we've so individualized it. And if you have any familiarity with the Bible, and if you don't, we're so glad you're here, and quite frankly, that's as much your advantage as your disadvantage, so I'm not here to, what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to make you feel small. But if you have any familiarity with the Bible, you're likely to be very, very familiar with Galatians 5 and the fruits of the Spirit. For the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, those things. But here's, to to me, the the paradigm-bending thing. Paul's not saying it to you. He's not saying that, that you'll know the Spirit's in you if you're like that. He's saying you'll know the Spirit's in you if, if, if we are like that. And those are two completely different things. Because a society can go lots of ways if a bunch of Christians just do holiness and unity by themselves. But if a group does it together, I've been reading through G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, which is, I'm the type of person who only has to understand 5% of what I read, which makes, me a good, which makes that book a good candidate. If you're the type of person who has to understand every word before you keep going, I don't recommend it. But he makes some comment in chapter seven around the story of the Bible is about hell rebelling against heaven up there and heaven rebelling against hell down here. And I just wonder if, if, if our current cultural moment really is that unique or if it's always been this way and God's strategy is, is unwavering. It's a people moved by his spirit, indwelt by his spirit, understanding together a different way of being human and modeling that to a culture that desperately needs them. Listen to the way Paul starts this ever so famous section of scripture, verse 14. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So notice the whole thing implies a togetherness. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And then he ends it this way. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. See, the question that I want to ask is, so is Paul talking to a person or a people? Because if, if, if you heard a president offer a, a speech and it started and ended with those kinds of one another's, you would assume his, he was speaking to a, 
a group of people, if you heard a coach, you would assume that the focus of his halftime speech was around the, the need for unity and togetherness, and yet somehow we've allowed ourselves to read this, this text through this strongly individualistic bias. So let me, let me read this text that I keep referring to again, and we'll move towards communion. Live by the Spirit, I say. And just, please just hear, hear Paul saying this to us, not to you, so to speak. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these, in, for these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you, plural you, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh, and notice these are so inherently social, The works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissension, factions, envy. And you're like, how does envy make the list? It's communal. It destroys things. Drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, and again, hear this, not so much an obligation you carry, but an obligation we carry, a gift we carry. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. What's Paul saying? Well, if you kind of pick all this apart, there's two commands that are happening simultaneously. One is this idea of unity. But notice also there's a standard. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a moral arc. There's this call to holiness. Which brings me back to this question. What if God is leading us into a way of being human or how is God calling you into a way of being human that involves unity and holiness? I thought N.T. Wright's observations from this passage were brilliant and it is part of what un- kind of uncorked this whole thing for me when he said this. He says, unity by itself, easy. It's not that hard. Because you just say anything goes, everyone's in, there are no standards, and at least uh, initially, it's easy. The same could be said for holiness. Holiness by itself, if the only obligation is people meeting a standard, like it's probably not gonna be a very big group, but you, you can slowly just vet people out. You can live in an echo chamber. It's not that hard to make sure that you live your life around only people who agree with you and that you're good. But to do both, to live in the tension of a call to value people for people's sake and to understand that we are a people called to live under the authority and purposes of God, that's a completely different animal. G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy, he actually argues, and we're going to explore this a little bit on Lent, that for him, the great apologetic for the Christian faith, because he converted later in life, was that no other version of faith, no other worldview does paradox the way Christianity does paradox. He goes on to say, there's lots of examples of societies and, and groups of people who do mercy really well. And there's lots of examples of, of societies and peoples and groups that do what he calls severity very well but to do mercy and severity, unity and holiness. Well, that, that would take the work of the Holy Spirit. That would take a people so rethinking what it means to be human. And so I think the question I wanna leave you with, and as the band's gonna start making their way back up here, is just this question of, 
it, ironically, as you individualize it, well, how does that flesh out for you? I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's certain political things that you speak to and you're frankly lacking nuance in your understanding of them. Maybe you've got sucked into the kind of vitriol and it's okay that you have it because you're right, you're on the right side or the left side, whichever, I mean, I didn't mean that uh, proximate to the spectrum. Like, how might God uh, not just be inviting us, but you into this space of like, how do you better live in the tension? Where's the opportunity for you? Maybe, frankly, you just have to recognize that you've, you've kind of started to take God's mercy for granted and your, your personal holiness is kind of sloppy. What, what does it look like if you were to take this more seriously? And then can you imagine if for a span of time, a community like this could do that and do that well? And can you imagine the, the potential salve that that would be for a culture that frankly doesn't think it can happen or that it even exists. You know, as we, as we move toward communion, if, if you've not been here with us before or taken it with us before, uh, communion is for people who are actively following Jesus. Uh, we're not gonna check your ID there. If, you've, if you're active in that faith, we welcome you. If you've not been baptized, we welcome you, but we'd love to have that conversation because I think there is value there. But really what we're doing here is sitting with the fact that like, sin's not just a religious idea, it's a human problem. And that the solution doesn't come from within us, but it comes from outside of us in the redemption of God found in the cross. That his desire to lead us into healing and forgiveness. And so part of the design of this time, though I know it's hard and there's so many moving parts, is just to sit with like, okay God, is there something personal from my own stuff that I need to confess to you before I take this? And yet I would add, it's not just important that you sit with your need for forgiveness, it's also important that you sit with the forgiveness that you receive when you ask for it. And then also it's this reminder that the great thing about the Christian life is it's spirit-empowered. That, that the fundamental belief is that God takes our ordinary everyday lives and uses them for him. And that God takes ordinary everyday things and fuels them. Uses them as fuel, excuse me, for us. And communion embodies that. So I'm gonna pray, and this band's gonna lead us through a couple songs. We'll give you a chance to grab your wine and bread. God, Lord, these are like so many things that would come up in a context like this so much easier to talk about than they are to live out. And yet we just beg you uh, that you would use us to bring more nuance, higher levels of thoughtfulness and understanding to so many of the conversations that are just dividing us in two. Um, God, we ask that, that you would take our lives and for another six days use them to serve people in your stead and with you. And then God, we ask that you take these, this ordinary everyday bread and wine and that you would send your spirit in the same way you send it into us, send it into them and use it as spiritual food for us, God, to empower us. We need your grace, God, and we'll take it in every form we can get it. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.